It is a special January 1 Happy New Year edition of PFTPM. We didn't have PFT Live today. We'll have it on Tuesday. Wanted to have a chance to have a little conversation, although it's more of a monologue than a dialogue. I will be answering your questions, though, coming up later in this broadcast. Wanted to get the new year off to a good start. Just got back from Connecticut. Great day to travel. Let me tell you, low traffic on the way to the airport. Not that many people in the airport. Plane was fairly full, but very smooth day. January 1, a good day to travel. Not a great night to be away from home, but we did what we had to do last night as we wrapped up week number 17. A couple of thoughts coming out of week number 17. I want to start with the two one seeds. We now know that the Ravens will be the number one seed in the AFC and the 49ers will be the number one seed in the NFC. They really have a question that they need to resolve, an important one. Whether and to what extent you're going to rest your starters in the final week of the season. If you treat week 18 like an extra buy, you got three weeks between games. And look what happened to the Ravens four years ago. Remember when they clinched week 16, it would have been at the time because there were only 16 games. So there was one week left, week 17. Mark Ingram, running back at the time, suffered a calf strain. And I think that freaked him out a little bit. So John Harbaugh initially said he was going to leave it up to the players or something like that. And maybe he did. But at the end of the day, they decided to rest. So they rested. Final week of the season. They rested, obviously, by week. Then comes the divisional round. And what happens in the divisional round? You're going to have a team that most likely had to play hard all the way through till the end of the regular season and that won a game in the wild card round had to play for its life, single elimination, win or go home. They win. While you were off, they were playing a game and they were winning. They were building confidence. Now they bring that in. And you've got everything riding on the potential outcome of the game. Your whole season, your special season, the season that resulted in you being the number one seed. It's all coming down to this. We've seen it before. I think that's one of the reasons psychologically why the one seed struggles sometimes. You've got that season that you piece together one week at a time. And it all can go in three hours on a Saturday or a Sunday. Just like that. Everything you did, everything you put into it, everything you worked for. Remember the old Bill Parcells? This is why you lift all them weights. You get one bad afternoon, one bad evening, any given Sunday, any given Saturday, any given Monday, any given whatever... And it's over, although division round games aren't on Monday yet. I'm surprised they haven't moved one of the division round games to standalone spot on Monday night. That's a different issue altogether. But both the 49ers and the Ravens, they've got that issue. Now, the good news for the 49ers, to the extent they're thinking about resting, although I'm not sure that the team should. It's very easy to say, I told you so. And you look at what happened to Bradley Chubb yesterday in garbage time of the Baltimore blowout of the Dolphins, 30-point deficit. Chubb's still out there, tears his ACL. I told you so. Oh, it shouldn't have done that. That becomes the thing everybody will point to if a key player from the Ravens or the 49ers would get injured. But from the Ravens' perspective, they don't have an opportunity to knock the Rams out of the playoffs. They're in. If they'd had a chance to keep the Ravens out, or the Ravens, the Rams out, I think the 49ers should have considered doing that just like the Ravens have that opportunity coming up on Saturday with the Steelers coming to town. 
Steelers trying to get in. And the Steelers, because they play Saturday, all they know is go win. Everything else will take care of itself the next day. Go win the game. Ravens beat them. They're done. They're gone. Bye-bye. Don't have to worry about them showing up at any point in the postseason. So there's a balance there. What do you do? Do you say, we're going to put our guys in bubble wrap? We're going to treat it as a preseason game? We're not going to let our guys out there at all? If they do, it's going to be just a cameo appearance? Or do we say, we're playing to win? We're going to stay sharp. We're going to stay motivated. We're going to stay hungry. We want that one more win. We want to knock out the Steelers if we can. 49ers, again, what do they have? Nothing. But, but they have that urgency to be ready when the division round comes, because if you don't, it's three weeks between games that count. Now, if either team loses in the division round and they don't play their starters week 18, will they be second-guessed? Maybe. You're more likely to be second-guessed if you get a starter injured in week 18. That's why I think this safer course for the coach is protect my guys. There'll be plenty of factors that will contribute to a loss in the division round, and very few will say, aha, if you would have played your starters in week 18, you would have won. Very few will say that, but we saw it four years ago, and I think there is a very real psychological dynamic to shutting down for three weeks while the team that you are going to play in the division round, whoever it may be, plays and wins, and quite possibly has to play to win week 18 to even get in in the first place. All right. I got my notes here. Lost track of them. The two Super Bowl teams from last year, the Eagles and the Chiefs, they're both broken to a certain extent. And I think the difference is the Chiefs have accepted that they're not and this year never will be the team they were last year or the year before or the year before or the year before. Every team is different. Every year is different. And the more you try to force yourself and will your way to being the team that you were in some past year, I think the more frustrated you're going to be and the more likely you are to not achieve whatever this group can achieve. Teams change dramatically every year. To the outside, we see Patrick Mahomes. We see Travis Kelsey. We see Chris Jones. We see Andy Reid. It looks the same. It's not the same. Every year, every team is its own entity, and it starts in the offseason, and it runs all the way through until either week 18 or whenever you conclude your playoff run. Forget about what you were. The Chiefs seem to be figuring that out. Their win over the Bengals on Sunday after they kind of bottomed out against the Raiders on Christmas, because I think against the Raiders on Christmas, they just decided, you know what? We're just going to be the team that we've been in the past. We're just going to go be that team. And then they realized, wait, we're not that team. We can't do those things. So this week, let's just be the best version of who we currently are. The Eagles need to come to that realization quickly, or they're going to make a fast exit from the playoffs. Because I feel like they're frustrated because this year isn't going like last year. Well, that's the way it goes in the NFL. Every year's different. Both coordinators gone. And we see that frustration manifest itself. There's some discussion now about A.J. Brown having issues with the coaching staff and Nick Sirianni talking last week about watching his demeanor and he's too tense. 
They wanted this year to be as easy as last year. Last year was easy until it wasn't. This year was easy until it wasn't. Now they weren't blowing people out, but they were 10 and one. It felt like it was ordained. It felt like it was written. It felt like it was done that they were going to get back to the Super Bowl and potentially win it this time. Reality began to crash in and they're having a hell of a time processing, I believe, the reality that they're not who they were last year. Quit trying to be who you were last year. Be who you are now. Be the best version of who you are now. Work within the lines. That's what the Chiefs did. Color within the lines. Be what you are, not what you used to be or not what you will be. Just be what you are, the best version of what you are. May not be good enough, but at least it'll eliminate all this angst and frustration. Quit trying to be what you were last year. Be what you are now. It takes off the table all that comparison. And if people on the outside are saying, why, ain't you were, why aren't you what you were last year? Or why ain't you what you were last year? Either way is acceptable to me. If they're saying that, you just have to ignore them. And you have to mean it. Ignore that noise. Be the best version of yourself before it's too late. And for the Eagles, there's a chance it's too late. Because two seed, quite possibly gone. All the Cowboys have to do is beat the Commanders on Sunday. And the Cowboys will be the NFC East champions, and the two seed in the conference. The Eagles are going to have to hit the road as the five seed. They're going to have to go to Tampa or New Orleans or Atlanta. Who knows at this point? I think it's going to be Tampa. And if Tampa plays like they did on Sunday, maybe the Eagles can beat them. But then if you win that one, you're on the road again. Where do you go? Do you go to Dallas? Do you go to San Francisco? It depends on what happens with the three, six, and two, seven games. And there's a chance Dallas gets knocked out by Seattle. Remember, they had that great Thursday night game in Dallas. Get a little rematch of that. There's a chance Dallas loses and stirs everything up. But regardless, you want to be that two seed. You want to have the seven seed come to you. You want to be guaranteed the second home game before you go to San Francisco. And again, I've learned the hard way not to speak in absolutes on these matters, but the 49ers absolutely look like the best team in the conference. So the rest of it seems to be just details, frankly. Now, one of the reasons the Cowboys are in position to be the two seed in the NFC, that game on Saturday night, where it looked like the Cowboys were inevitably going to win. They get the late score that covers the spread. But the problem is Mike McCarthy left too much time on the clock for the Lions. And boy, he's lucky that game worked out the way it did. He still deserves to be criticized and scrutinized for it. And he should learn from it because the last thing he needs is some sort of a boneheaded mistake late in a playoff game that results in a loss because that means possibly, uh, probably not likely, not definitely, but it means possibly, Jerry Jones says, we got the pieces. We just have a coach that keeps shooting the team in the foot at the worst possible time. And it almost blew up on the Cowboys. Second and 14, throwing the ball instead of keeping it on the ground, forcing the Lions to take their final timeout, and then keeping it on the ground again, two 40 seconds off the clock, kick the field goal, go up by seven, and the Lions should have had about a minute left. Now, now, that overlooks the fact that the officiating crew made a horrible blunder in calling tripping on the Cowboys instead of on the Lions, which would have definitely changed the late-game dynamics. But even after that call, just work the clock, make them use their timeouts, 
leave them with as little time as possible. Some of these basic concepts, anybody that plays Madden, it's, it's amazing how many NFL games you watch and you ask yourself, are, are these coaches just too caught up in the moment? Do they have no one helping them? Is there a level of awareness that you have to have over and above just being the coach on the field where you understand how to take advantage of the clock? How many times do we see it where you're snapping it with eight seconds instead of one second when you're trying to milk the clock? You lose sight of the bigger picture here. Once you have that lead and once you're in a position to work that clock, you work it all the way down. You shorten the game as much as possible. You don't want to leave one extra second on the clock because that one extra second could be the second that turns your win into a defeat. Now, it, it's it's funny because I wrote today, and here's what happened. Saturday night, everything kind of hit the fan with that two-point conversion try. Well, instead of staying up and writing about it and thinking about it and trying to harvest some information... I had a long day coming up on Sunday. I went to bed and slept eight hours because Sundays in season are long ass days. So I decided I'm going to see where this all stands in the morning. Let's see how it's being processed. Let's see how it's being digested. And as soon as I got up and Matt Casey and I were communicating about things we'd possibly be chasing for the Sunday night football night in America show, we wanted to try to get to the bottom of the rabbit hole on whatever it was that happened with that two-point conversion attempt where Dan Skipper didn't report, Taylor Decker did report, and referee Brad Allen got it flipped around. So what I did yesterday, I started harvesting information in the morning, carried it into the afternoon, and held it in the event, and you never know how a Sunday is going to go. What are the big stories going to be? Are there going to be injuries that we need to weave into the Football Night in America broadcast? By the time we got to Sunday night, there really wasn't the occasion to rewind the clock to the prior day. So what I ended up doing was holding everything that I had accumulated yesterday. And as soon as I woke up this morning, because it's not like there was some big story to write about coming out of the Sunday night game between the Packers and the Vikings. It was time to go get all that stuff, download, and explain what happened. That's why, because I think some are like, well, why, what took you so long to address this? Well, that's why it, it took me that long to address it. And I also wanted to have real information, not supposition, not conjecture, not I think it was this, I think it was that. Because the first question is, is this going to spark some sort of a change to the way you go to the referee and report as eligible? Remember when the Patriots did the thing with the eligible, ineligible player, and they had an ineligible player lined up in an eligible position in the slot, but he wasn't eligible. And that got the Ravens all pissed off, possibly pissed off enough that they tipped the Colts off to the whole deflated football thing. There's still a belief that it all traces back to the Ravens and how pissed off they were. And Tom Brady saying, know the rules or words to that effect. What happened after that was the NFL made a change to the gamesmanship aspect of this whole reporting, not reporting, where you put the eligible guys, where you put the ineligible guys. There's not going to be a change coming out of this one. That's the initial reaction from the league. The league's position is basically they flew too close to the sun on wings of pastrami. The Lions tried to get cute. The Lions effed around and found out. They tried to confuse the Cowboys, and in confusing the Cowboys, they confused Brad Allen. You have to factor that in to this effort. This isn't just about running a play 
where Taylor Decker is going to be the eligible receiver. This is about before the play, creating the false impression that Dan Skipper was going to be the eligible receiver and that Taylor Decker was not going to be the eligible receiver because Skipper runs out toward Brad Allen. If Skipper is not going to be eligible, he's got no reason to go toward Brad Allen. He's got no reason to do what he does every time he reports as eligible. And I was counting it up for the season. Like, I was over 30 when I finally said, okay, Skipper does this a lot. He did it six times last week against the Vikings. So he is their tight end in their jumbo package. So he's reporting on a regular basis. So here comes Skipper to report. Skipper's coming out to report. Brad Allen sees Skipper coming at him. Now, remember this. It's loud. These are human beings. There's a lot of stuff happening. Have you ever been down on the sideline of a full stadium? It's kind of overwhelming. Well, you take that and you walk out onto the field. It's a different vibe altogether. And I'm not making excuses. I'm just trying to get people to understand. This is the stew of factors that you're dealing with. So what the Lions wanted to do, and I don't fault them for this. They just have to accept the fact that it worked too well because it fooled the official in addition to fooling the Cowboys. They didn't just want to have a guy report as eligible. And then once that guy reports as eligible, there's a big arrow pointing at him that they might throw a pass to him. They wanted to set it up so the Cowboys would think the guy the arrow is pointing at is ineligible. And a guy that they're not paying attention to is going to slip through the cracks and catch the pass. Now, did they really need to do that? I don't know. Would the play have worked if they hadn't tried to fool the Cowboys? We'll never know. But they tried to fool the Cowboys. And in so doing, they fooled Brad Allen. It's that simple. And look, deception is a key aspect of the game of football. You are rewarded for successfully fooling your opponent. It happens all the time. I've said for years, one of the reasons why coaches and general managers and owners lie their asses off is because you're rewarded for successfully deceiving in a game. Where does that line extend once we get beyond the confines of a game? And within a game, is it fair game to try to essentially lie, deceive, fool an opponent by the way you're communicating, by the way you're shuttling the players in and out. Here comes Dan Skipper heading for Brad Allen. Oh, hey, this is their jumbo tight end. He's reporting as eligible. And then Taylor Decker walks over with Penny Sewell. So it's not obvious. This is the genius of it. It really is. It really is a smart maneuver. It's Penny Sewell and Taylor Decker walking in one direction toward Brad Allen. Here comes Dan Skipper the other way. The idea is to get the Cowboys to think Skipper's the guy who's eligible. But Brad Allen believed Skipper is the guy who's coming in to report. And you can Sapruder film the, the available video and say, oh, there's Brad Allen acknowledging Taylor Decker. Look, it's all happening in real time. And it's all happening according to the usual procedure. And there's no freaking reason for Dan Skipper to run toward Brad Allen if he's not trying to create the impression he's reporting when he really isn't. It was gamesmanship. It was deception. And it's fair game, I suppose, 
the problem is they fooled Brett Allen. And this is the one unanswered, unanswered question. And I, I've seen some texts come through while we're doing this that Dan Campbell's talking to reporters today. Somebody needs to ask him. And I tried yesterday. Somebody needs to ask him. He declined to talk about it. I, somebody needs to ask him. You said after the game that you covered this in the pregame meeting with the officials. Now, I'm told Brad Allen wasn't in that meeting. Just a couple of members of the crew. All the more reason, if you're not just telling them, hey, we got a play in today where we're going to throw it to Taylor Decker. But you know what? Come here. When we do the play, we're going to try to fool the Cowboys. We want them to think that 70 is going to be eligible. So he's going to run out toward the referee while Taylor Decker, 68, plus another lineman, kind of nonchalantly move over toward the referee. And one of them is going to report, but 70 is not going to do it. But we're doing that because we want to fool the Cowboys. Are you, you okay with that? We okay with that? See, when you sound it out that way, do you really think that Dan Campbell explained it that way to the members of Brad Allen's crew? I want to know, what did Brad Allen know about that play? What did Dan Campbell say in that pregame meeting? Because I don't think it's fair for him to say, we went over this to a T. Well, you may have gone over the play, but you didn't go over the setup. And the setup was aimed at fooling the Cowboys. And it successfully fooled. Congratulations. You win the Oscar. You successfully fooled the official as well. And I really did get a kick out of the reaction by some on social media. And I'm carrying the NFL's water. And I'm defending the officials. You must be new here if you think I'm just going to blindly defend them. I'm going to criticize them when they need to be criticized. I'm an advocate for tearing the whole operation down and rebuilding it. I'm an advocate for full-time officials. If they make a mistake, I'm not going to be the last guy to say it. I'm going to be the first guy to say it. In this case, what happened was the Lions induced a mistake. In their zeal to fool the Cowboys, they fooled Brad Allen. Period. And to the extent that Brad Allen's crew has made some mistakes this year, you got to factor that in to which crew you're going to use that ruse against. Because maybe Brad Allen's crew was the most likely to be fooled by this effort to fool the Cowboys. Biggest story of the week, and I have a few things I want to say about it. Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos. Here's the timeline as best I understand it, based upon everybody I've talked to over the course of the last five days, including talking yesterday to Wilson's agent, Mark Rogers, who went on the record to give his version of what happened on Halloween, October 31, two days after the Broncos beat the Chiefs, starting into their bye week. Rogers said he got a call from George Payton, the Broncos GM, and Richard Tato, whose title I believe is VP of Football Administration, And they had a proposal for Mark Rogers, and it was a cordial, friendly call. The proposal was that Russell Wilson's injury guarantee for 2025, $37 million, that is due to become fully guaranteed on March 18th, the fifth day of the 2024 league year, they want to move that. 
And here's the problem. Here's the underlying problem, because a lot of people have gotten this wrong. And I'm not saying, oh, you got it wrong. I just want to give you a place where you can get it right and understand exactly what goes on here. Contracts have rolling guarantees. Now, a lot of contracts, what happens is you have injury guarantees that vest in the year the money is to be paid. For example, I've got a 2024 injury guarantee from the contract I signed last year. It becomes fully guaranteed at some point in March of 2024. The better contracts vest injury guarantees into full guarantees more than a year in advance. It's one of the reasons why Ezekiel Elliott was with the Cowboys as long as he was. They paid him a lot more than they wanted to in 2022 because his salary was already fully guaranteed because the injury guarantee for 2022 flipped to a full guarantee in 2021. That's what Wilson's contract does. Another 37 million guaranteed for injury in 2025 to be paid out next year becomes fully guaranteed March 18 of 2024. They wanted to move that. Here's why they wanted to move it. If Russell Wilson plays all the way through to the end of the season and he's got any injury that keeps him from passing a physical on or before March 18, they're stuck. They don't have the flexibility to say, you know what? This isn't working out. You're doing a good job, but you're not doing a great job. You're not living up to the standard that this contract would suggest. So we're going to exercise our prerogative to terminate the contract and you become a free agent. The trigger's in there early. See, people feel bad for Russell Wilson. He's walking away with $124 million and he's going to be a free agent in the early days of free agency. There's no reason to feel bad for him, folks. Guys get far more mistreated than Russell Wilson is being mistreated by the Broncos, if he's even being mistreated at all. So that's what they wanted. They wanted to move that date so they could decide after this season whether or not they want to continue or whether they want to do something else. They didn't want to possibly have their hands tied by an injury that would make it a foregone conclusion that they were bound to him through 2025, at least financially. They don't have to keep him, just like they're going to cut him, most likely, with $39 million fully guaranteed for 2024. They didn't want to be in a position where they also had $37 million fully guaranteed for 2025. That, that's what they did. That's what they proposed. Now, Mark Rogers, who is primarily a baseball agent, and we know in baseball the contracts are guaranteed, I don't think he reacted well to this. I think he felt like the rug was pulled out from under him. Now, this is me talking, not him. I believe that he assumed when they did this contract, the $37 million to be paid in 2025 was, as a practical matter, fully guaranteed. That they weren't going to cut him before that money vests is fully guaranteed. So it kind of throws you for a loop. Hold, 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 hold on here. You know, we did this contract and we built in these future guarantees that vest because, you know, you're worried about the funding rule and you don't want to put all this money in escrow. That's the game that the owners play to try to have these devices that on one hand, you look at as a way to avoid the funding rule because it's not fully guaranteed at signing. On the other hand, it does provide an avenue for a team to say, we're going to rip this thing up before this contract has its injury guarantees for 2025 fully vest. Now, here's an important point. 
Same thing happened to Derek Carr last year. And nobody shed a tear for Derek Carr. Nobody said boo. I mean, think about it. Derek Carr signs a much-hyped $40 million per year contract with the Raiders in 2022, before the season. Extension. He was entering the final year of his contract. Signs the extension with all that guaranteed money. And you know what happens. The agent puts it out to the reporters, and the reporters rush to Twitter, and they overstate it. And it's a great deal. Everything's great. Everything's happy. Everybody's fine. And then we get to week 17, and what happens? He gets benched. Why did he get benched? He had a $40 million injury guarantee. It was going to become fully guaranteed right after the Super Bowl. They did the same thing to him that the Broncos ultimately did to Russell Wilson. Now, I don't know whether or not there was any effort made earlier that year to say to Derek Carr's agent, we want you to move this date around or we're going to bench Derek Carr. See, I think the problem here is the Broncos were a little too overt in their messaging. The Broncos tried a little too hard to engineer an outcome, and that's what sparked this reaction. They got the union involved, threats of litigation or grievance over alleged CBA violations. I still don't know what the CBA violation is because I think a team is fully within its rights to say, you know what, we got a guy here who's got an injury guarantee that becomes fully guaranteed on March 18, and if he's injured and he can't pass a physical, we're not going to be able to tear this contract up. So we're exercising our prerogative to not play him. See, it's a twist to the Terrell Owens rule that the union jammed into the CBA, rightfully so, in 2006. It takes away the ability of a team to send a guy home with pet. You can't do that anymore. What the Buccaneers did to Keyshawn Johnson, what the Eagles did to Terrell Owens, after they suspended him four games for conduct detrimental to the team, they just said, go home and we'll pay you. You're not welcome here. You can't do that anymore. Where it gets very murky is what a team can or can't do by way of the 53-man roster. Who has the right to play? Who has the right to dress? Every week, there's six or seven guys who are on your team, but they're not in uniform. What rights do they have to say, I should be in uniform? What rights does a starter have to say, I should still start? I think the problem is, by being as overt and explicit as they were, the Broncos handed an argument to the union that this has nothing to do with football. If it's about football, there's nothing we can do about it. If it's about business, if you're using this as leverage to get him to adjust his contract, that's where you're violating the CBA. That's what I think would have happened if the Broncos had gone through with it. And that might be why they didn't go through with it. Either they were bluffing or they got scared by the threat of litigation. We get down to the end of the season, they couch it as a football decision. There's not going to be a grievance. There's not going to be a fight, but there will be a divorce between the Broncos and Russell Wilson. There's no coming back from this. All this acrimony, threats of grievances, stuff being leaked to the media yesterday when the Broncos were putting their version out there through NFL.com and NFL Network, their version. You can just tell it was their version that was being put out there. No surprise, they partially own NFL Network. But I think it's gotten to the point where it's just done. Now, one more thing about Carr. And this is another reason why Carr has more cause to be upset than Russell Wilson. There's two different ways and two different time periods that an injury guarantee can become fully guaranteed. You tie it to the start of the league year, like with Russell Wilson, fifth day of the league year. 
the 2025 injury guarantee becomes a full guarantee, or you tie it to the start of the waiver period. That was Carr's situation. Second, third day of the waiver period. Now, it was explained to me several years ago that basically the etiquette in the NFL is if the trigger is tied to the start of the league year, it's fair game for the team to rip up the contract if it chooses to do so. But if the trigger is tied to the waiver period, that is specifically to get around the funding rule. That the team doesn't want to have that full guarantee at signing, so we're going to push it just far enough so it's essentially a full guarantee. We're not going to pull the rug out from under you. We're not going to rip up the contract. I mean, think about this. The Raiders signed Carr in 2022. And that first big trigger after 2022 was early 23, tied to the waiver period. That was a breach of etiquette. I don't know if it was a breach of the CBA, but if anybody has reason to be pissed off about how they were treated in similar situations, it's definitely Derek Carr. Because when he signed that contract, there was no way he or his agent were thinking they're going to tear this up after one year. If it had been tied to the third day of the league year, okay, you know what? They have an out. Just like the Seahawks have with Geno Smith. Oh, he's got a three-year contract. Well, you look at it. Oh, no, they have an out on the third, fourth, or fifth day of the league year. There's a roster bonus that's due, which will be the moment they either renew their vows or they move on. So, so it's, a, it's a nuanced point, but I think it's an important point. Carr really did get screwed by the Raiders and by Josh McDaniels or Dave Ziegler or Mark Davis, whoever made that decision. He really did get screwed. And we never heard any of that. There was no blowback. There was no PR campaign. From Derek Carr. Right or wrong, I'm just, I'm not passing judgment. I'm just stating facts. They could have made a stink about it and they didn't. This Wilson thing, it became a stink. And the fact that it became a stink makes it even more likely that there will not be a continuation of the relationship between Russell Wilson and the Broncos. One other thing that I want to get to before I answer some questions. This David Tepper thing. You know, the more I think about it, the more pissed off I get. The attitude that these owners have, and I say this all the time, it's almost like they're from a different planet. They have so much money. They have so much power. They don't operate like the rest of us. Think about it. Everywhere they go, they're being catered to. Everyone's afraid of them. Everyone's tiptoeing around them because all they have to do is snap their fingers. And that's it. You look at me sideways, you're gone. I'll replace you with somebody else. Oh, there may be a lawsuit. Okay, fine. Settle it whatever it takes. I, I want this person gone. I mean, and I'm not saying that's the way David Tepper is, but when you have that much money, he's the second richest owner in the NFL behind the Walmart clan that owns the Broncos. You just do whatever you want, including throwing your drink, apparently, out into the stands at Everbank Field in Jacksonville because you don't like the mean things they've been saying to you about your bad football team and about the fact that you're not a very good owner. And when the video emerged, first thing I did, what's the league have to say about it? What's the team have to say about it? League says we're aware of the video and we have no further comment at this time. Team says no comment. Well, that's the perfect opportunity to say that video doesn't show what you think it shows. That's not him. It's just somebody who looks like it. They think it's him. It's not him. Or the cup was empty. Or he was provoked. He had good cause to do what he did. He was trying to put out a fire. I mean, it was their chance to say anything other than no comment. And by saying no comment, 
the fair inference is they know. He did it. And, and let's just think about this. The owner of an NFL team with hundreds of paying customers in his immediate vicinity decides it's appropriate as a manifestation of his own personal frustration to throw his drink out onto the paying customers. Yeah, they're not the paying customers at his stadium, but still he's getting 40%. Remember that. Now he doesn't get it directly. It's the visiting team pool, but all teams share from it equally. The bottom line is they're all paying customers. Whether you're the owner of the home team or you're the owner of the road team, they're all your customers. If you went into a store and the owner of the store threw his drink on you, you would be upset and you would expect there to be some sanction, some repercussion, some consequence for the owner of the store or the manager or whoever, anybody working for the store. If they throw water on you or whatever was in that cup in their store, it's probably not a good thing. So what's the NFL going to do? I pointed out earlier today that the league in 2009 fined the late Bud Adams 250 grand for the double barrel. I'm tempted to do it. The double barrel middle finger. And that's not, that's you didn't throw water on anybody. He's just giving the middle finger. So what? Everybody gives a middle finger. $250,000. Well, if that's the standard they're holding these owners to, that's the starting point. That's the floor. If middle fingers is 250 for an owner, throwing your drink on the paying customers is what, 2.5 million, maybe more? I don't know. I want to see what they do. And somebody reminded me, I haven't read about this yet, but somebody reminded me. Remember when a Patriots fan threw a beer on Tyreek Hill? You know what happened to that fan? Banned for life. Banned for life. I'm not saying Tepper should be banned for life, but but it's just inexcusable. I don't care how upset you get. And I had a coach text me last night. Why are these owners miserable? They got all the money. They got all the power. They Even if their team's losing, they're still making money. It's, it's sad. And it's kind of refreshing in a strange sort of way that the really rich and famous and popular or as messed up as the rest of us, that you get so caught up and so keyed up that you would react that way. Dude, you're worth like $20 billion. Chill. Be happy. Enjoy your life. You've won. It doesn't matter what your football team does. You've won. I want to see what the league does. There's a section of Playmakers, the book that came out two years ago in March, about how owners have been involved in controversies and they really haven't gotten an apples-to-apples -apples punishment that players get. You know, for example, when Jim Mercer was suspended, he just wasn't allowed to go to the games. He still got all the money that came through the cash register during the period of his suspension. The player's suspended. He's not allowed to play. And he doesn't get any of his money. But the owner still gets his profits. The owner still gets his revenue. The owner still gets his piece of the multi-billion dollar TV network pie. They say the owners are held to a higher standard than players. That's That's been proven time and again to be baloney. And this will either be an occasion to prove that it is true 
that owners are held to a higher standard as they should be, or that the shield is there to shield literally the owners and protect them. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. That man behind the curtain might throw a drink on you. Also, I got to move on, but in theory, he could be charged. In theory, it is an assault and battery. I know people like to downplay it and poo-poo it and act like it's a big deal, but you throw water on somebody, it's no different than throwing a punch at them. And, you know, water was in his mouth, whatever he was drinking was in his mouth, and you got your mouth open and you may have gotten some in your mouth. I don't know what diseases David Tepper might or might not have. I don't want... I don't want the stuff that was in the glass he was drinking thrown into my eyes. So whether it's potential for some sort of misdemeanor battery charge or lawsuit, easy lawsuit to file and deep, 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 deep pockets of David Tepper. All right, question time. I'm glad I did this today. I didn't think I'd want to do it because... Yeah, it's about, it was about eh, five and a half hours door to door. And I was a little tired when I got home. And boy, it, it, it's just a nap right now. Would look pretty good. That doesn't mean I won't take one when I'm done. Let's answer some questions. PFT PM Posse, now that Russell Wilson is going to be a free agent for the first time, how much does it hurt him that his agent is a baseball agent with Wilson as his only NFL client, less connections and overall knowledge of NFL free agency, won't be able to just push for a massive max contract? Doesn't need to. Here's what he's going to do, I believe. One year veteran minimum deal, one year deal, 1.21 million Broncos pay the rest. That's it. It's a matter of picking your destination. Simple negotiation. One year, 1.21 million with no franchise tag, no restriction on him. I want one year and then go to the market the following year, knowing that you're going to make 39 million, no matter what, most of it from the Broncos in 2024. So then the question becomes, which team says, we want you to come in and be our star, not come in and compete. I don't think he's going to want to have to go anywhere and say, I have to win this job from this guy. He wants to be treated the way the Broncos treated him. But this time around, his next team doesn't have to give up multiple first round picks, multiple second round picks, multiple players, and all that money. All they have to give up is $1.21 million for one year with Russell Wilson. Raiders, Steelers, Commanders, Falcons, and the Vikings, if Kirk Cousins walks away. PFTP on Posse, how can we say the NFL isn't fixing games? Even you say they break their own rules telling refs to adjust the way they call games to help the offense, no false starts, holding, et cetera. And how do they do a 180 turn on anything for an extra dollar? Well, I, how do I put this properly? I believe that incompetence explains 99.9% of the things we see, if not more, in an NFL game, because I don't believe the NFL is sufficiently competent to rig its own games. I don't think it can pull it off. There's too many people who would be in on it. There's too many moving parts. There's too much stuff that would have to happen. I don't think they're willing to do it. I don't think they're capable of doing it. That's why I believe it's not there. I'm not saying that there aren't some people with malevolent intentions who are in position to feather their own nest with whatever money they can make. I just think that it's too hard and they wouldn't be able to pull it off. It doesn't mean it's impossible. And we see the influence that one person can have, whether it's a coach, whether it's a quarterback, whether it's a referee. There is an opportunity for a corrupt referee. 
to try to change the outcome of a game. Yeah. I mean, Brad Allen on Saturday night. There's a chance he, I'm not saying this happened, but in theory, he knew exactly what was going on. He acted like he didn't to influence the outcome of the game. Phil Luckett, 1998, Thanksgiving. You said heads to Jerome Bettis or tails or whatever it was. Deliberately mishearing the coin toss. It was an accident. Okay, fine. It was an accident. Maybe it wasn't. One of these days, it won't be. So I don't think the league would ever do it. I think there's an avenue for individuals to try. And that's why it's critical for the league to always be vigilant about who the people are who are officiating games, what the relationships are, whether and to what extent they have gambling problems. And I think it goes beyond the officials. There's a, a potential iceberg out there with inside information that can be a problem. So I'm not ready to go there yet with the NFL fixing games. I don't think I ever will be. There's no reason for the NFL to fix games. They're making the money no matter what. And this is the kind of thing, if it blows up on them, they would lose a ton of money. It would be very bad for the brand if they were fixing games or if they wanted a certain team to win. But there is, I think, an avenue or two or 10 or 20 for people with selfish motivations to screw things up. And hopefully the NFL will take it seriously and put barriers in place to keep it from happening. Okay, I got to move through some of these quickly. Felt football, at what point is someone going to notice that Kobe Turner is the defensive player of the year? Maybe rookie of the year, defensive rookie of the year. He's got nine sacks now. He had two and a half against the Giants on Sunday. Defensive player of the year, I'm not ready to go that far. But he, he's close to, I think, breaking Aaron Donald's franchise rookie sack record. So they've done a great job of rebuilding that team without first-round picks. MC, Happy New Year. Michael, Happy New Year to you, MC. Why is there a rule regarding lineman eligibility in the first place? Why not just have the defense defend everything? The idea is you got five guys who aren't eligible. And it's not supposed to be a guessing game who those five guys are. The five offensive linemen are, are ineligible. And then you've got the five players who are eligible plus the quarterback. So if you're going to have an extra offensive lineman on the field, he's got to be eligible. One of those guys has got to be eligible. We can't just bring out six offensive linemen. One of them have to be eligible, even if he's not going to catch a pass. It's an extra offensive lineman in lieu of a receiver or a tight end. That's, that's why it is what it is. And in this case, the issue was, the Lions, well, you already heard me say, yeah, you heard me say, you don't need me to say it again. Dr. J144, am I imagining that during the Dan Snyder stuff, you said the NFL backed off, the owners are held to a higher standard thing. If so, will that help Tepper now? Players get disciplined when they retaliate against fans who throw drinks at them. What Tepper did is worse than that. I think what I said during Snyder is they didn't want to create a standard for him that they would have to apply to themselves in the future. If you create a blueprint for taking out an owner, that blueprint can then be used to take out other owners. And I'd say most, it's like getting audited on your taxes. Nobody wants to be audited on your taxes because they're going to show up, maybe looking for one thing, and they're going to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig, and they're going to find something else, something you didn't even know about. That's what happened to Dan Snyder. He ultimately had to sell because of stuff that was found 
once they came in and just started digging. They came in for another reason. It was still the same general reason, but until they start digging, they don't find it. So all it takes, and I think this is the concern for other owners, one sufficiently disgruntled employee who makes enough of a stink that it registers on the NFL's radar screen and they bring in Mary Jo White or someone else to investigate. That's why I think Michael Bidwell, the Cardinals owner, has been a little nervous because this whole thing with Terry McDonough could blow up on him. Now, as we see different bits and pieces come out, there's never been anything that really coalesces from a media standpoint and creates that kind of groundswell where the league says, yeah, we probably should investigate the Cardinals. But that's the concern. If something happens with a former employee or a current employee and that person says something loudly enough that we hear it and we say, oh, that's bad, that's when the league may mobilize and the next thing you know, old Jed selling the team. All right, let's see what else I have. And I'm referring to Jed Clampett, not Jed York, by the way. I don't want any misunderstanding. Next thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. That's that. It was in that vein. All right, moving through these. A lot of great questions today. I appreciate it. Re-ask them all Wednesday if you really want them to be answered, because we will do this again on Wednesday. Fishman WVU, should the commanders move on from Sam Howell and draft another quarterback or try and draft a great lineman to protect the quarterback? Franchise quarterback, you either have one or you don't. If you have one, you're a contender year in and you're out. If you don't, you're not. And I, I think they've seen enough from Howell to believe that he's not. Now, new coach might feel otherwise, but it would be one hell of a coincidence if they just happen to hire a guy who says, oh, you know what? Sam Howell is the quarterback I have been pining to coach. I'll pass on Drake Mayer, Caleb Williams, and I'll go straight for Sam Howell. So, look, it's, it's an unforgiving game, but quarterbacks get chewed up and spit out quickly in today's NFL you get your opportunity and you better deliver. I mean, Jaron Hall for the Vikings, he had his opportunity last night, didn't deliver. And I didn't see anything from him, frankly, that makes me say, wow, hey, I see, ooh, oh, they, oh, there's a flash there. Oh, boy, if he could do that again repeatedly. That's the thing that Bill Walsh said. Peter King quotes it from time to time on PFT Live. The idea that if I see a guy do it once, I can coach him to do it over and over again. I didn't see anything last night from Jaron Hall that made me say, hey, there's a chance this guy's a keeper. And I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. You either perform at the acceptable level at the highest level of football, or you don't. And if you don't, there's other levels of football that you could try to perform at, or you could just be a backup for your career, whatever the case may be. Pauline, our good friend across the pond, any New Year's resolutions that you can share? I don't make New Year's resolutions. I don't do it. I made one 20 years ago, maybe 21. I think it was 20 or 21, one of the two. I resolved that if profootballtalk.com is ever going to be anything other than just this little hobby that kicked out tiny amounts of cash, if it was ever going to be something that it could be, I had to work on it every single day. That was my New Year's resolution in either 2003 or 2004, and I have stuck to it every day since then. There has not been a day that has gone by that I have not worked on profootballtalk.com in some form or fashion, some way, shape, or form, every day, no days off. And that was one of the keys. Now, there were other things that had to happen, but at some point, you know, if you have something that you think could take off, at some point, you got to resolve to put in the work in. And you can't do it some of the time. You got to do it all the time. You got to do it every day, or it's not going to get to where you think it can be. Liam Kelly, if Lamar sits out this week, would his MVP possibility be in jeopardy at all? No, I think he's 
I think he's got it. And the Associated Press doesn't really like the voters to say before the season's over, I'm definitely voting for this guy. But something dramatic and unforeseen would have to happen to get me to change the top of my ballot from Lamar Jackson at this point. They're the one seed. They took down the 49ers who have the other potential candidates. I think it's simple at this point. It's Lamar Jackson. Now, if Josh Allen would throw for 600 yards on Sunday and seven touchdown passes as the Bills beat the Dolphins to become the two seed in the AFC, would that be enough? Remember, it was 11 years ago. It looked like Peyton Manning had it locked up, and Adrian Peterson went off in the final week of the season and almost caught Eric Dickerson for the single-season rushing record, and that swung it toward Adrian Peterson. So I'm I'm not saying it's impossible. And again, I haven't finalized my position yet because there is still one more week of games to play. All right, well, I keep looking. I keep seeing good ones. I wanna I wanna stop this. Um, Mac Moon, what are your personal thoughts on the Peyton Russ situation? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mac Moon. My personal thought is football is business. They say football is family, but football is business. And they say football is family because it's good for business to say football is family. It's all a business. And I know that it's like finding out wrestling is fake. Like when you're a fan, you don't want to hear that. I remember when somebody, and I was, I was an adult at the time. I was 23, 24 years old. All football is a business. I didn't want to hear that. I want to think of it as the purity of the sport. I don't want to think about the fact that decisions get made based on dollars and cents, not what's good for the game, but it's one business decision after another, and they are cold and they are impersonal and they can be dehumanizing. Every player on an NFL roster is eventually going to be released or traded or not re-signed. Very rarely does a guy say, you know what? They still want me here, but I'm going to walk away. They still want me. This isn't a retirement where they really don't want me, so I'm retiring and I'm walking out with my head held high. They really do want me, and I'm choosing to not play. That doesn't happen very often. The vast majority of players are just going to be chewed up and spit out, and we bring in somebody else, and the machine keeps going. We were talking yesterday about just some of the names of great players of the past 20 years that you just forget all about, like... Priest Holmes, Larry Johnson, just to name a few, just some of the names that came up. Guys who were great, great, great players, and the game moves on, and we just forget about them because we're focused on the guys currently in the game. So my point is this. The Broncos made a business decision to trade for Russell Wilson. They made a business decision to pay Russell Wilson. Now they're making a business decision to move on from Russell Wilson. And until they move on from him, they're putting him to the side so they don't have to pay him $37 million for 2025. That's a business decision. And he's got to make business decisions. Everybody in the business makes business decisions. So, you know, they say it's not personal, it's just business. I think with the NFL, that's true. Now, every once in a while, it gets personal. When it gets personal, it's a problem because it gets in the way of good business decisions. I think the Broncos are trying to make good business decisions. Wilson's going to have to make good business decisions and he's going to be available to a team that wants to make the business decision to make him their quarterback in 2024. All right. On that note, my God, I don't know how long I've been going. I think it's well over an hour. So uh, thank you. Happy new year. PFT live Tuesday morning, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday PFT PM coming up on Wednesday and full coverage of everything happening in the NFL around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Happy new year. We appreciate all of you and we will see you again real soon.